Mountain Hill Radio contains graphic language and scenes some listeners may find troubling. Listener discretion is advised. Everything you are about to hear is absolutely fictional. The town of Mountain Hill is just that, a town. The people of Mountain Hill are just people, and never has there been a true case of a monster stealing a human skin. The forests do not contain fairy creatures from another world, the streets are not terrorized by monsters who only come out at night, and the water is perfectly safe to swim in. You're safe here. We promise. This is Mountain Hill Radio. Hello and a happy day, dear listeners. That storm is fast approaching now. We should be seeing some heavy winds the next several days and expect rain and thunderstorms for the next while. Be sure to have everything you need at home. You're swiftly running out of time. Today's episode is brought to you by D's Auto Shop and Auto Repair. Bring your car in for anything and Derek or Alice will get you fixed right up. Rufus Stevens misses living in Mountain Hill, though he would never say as much to his family. It's a long, sordid past they have with the town, one that brings back bad memories for all of them. His older sister, Sophie especially. She remembers it all, while Rufus and their younger brother, Toby, hardly remember anything. Still, he can't escape the ruthless feeling of homesickness he feels every time he has to leave the small mountain town he once called home. He belongs here, and maybe one day, he'll get the courage to move back home. For now, he works at his family's delivery business, and he volunteers to drive the two-hour drive up to Mountain Hill to deliver their supplies every other week. His sister pretends not to notice, but he thinks Toby's figuring it out. It doesn't matter. The Stevens clan is great at pretending nothing is wrong, all while drinking away their problems night by night. Rufus doesn't drink, and maybe that's why he's not afraid to return to Mountain Hill. This trip was only meant to be a short one. He would drop off some groceries, then a handful of items to individual residents. He would say hi to his old friends and grab a bite to eat at the old marionette diner on Ashton Avenue. He was supposed to be home by 7 p.m., just in time to say goodnight to his brother and sister and make the lonely trek to his small one-bedroom apartment. But then his damn truck broke down. Rufus can't say he's too broken up about having to stay a few nights in town. His brother offered to come get him, but Rufus declined. He wants to stay and catch up with the folks he remembers from his childhood. But honestly, he's just glad to have a break. Rufus loves his siblings. They're his best friends in the whole world, but sometimes it's nice to get away. He spends nearly every waking moment with them, up until he makes his deliveries and when he heads home to bed. It can be tedious, if he's being honest with himself. He books his room at the inn before making that call to the Stevens Delivery Warehouse phone. 
He knows if he already has accommodations in place, his siblings will have a much harder time convincing him to let them pick him up. He hates manipulating the situation like this, but it's a necessary evil. His trip into lost fiction is relatively quick. He wanted just to say hi to Renford and Mrs. Bell, but ended up being looped into dinner at the Bell's place that evening. He's totally fine with that outcome. It certainly beats eating dinner alone in a small rundown diner, no matter how much he likes their chicken fried steak and eggs platter. He swings by the grocery store again, this time as a customer rather than the person dropping things off to the store. Sally's grandson Carrick is nowhere to be found, and Sally is stocking the shelves with the cans of fruits and veggies Rufus dropped off only a few hours ago. Rufus, Sally says, smiling as she sets some cans on the shelf. She rises to her full height and pops her back, groaning a little as she straightens. Did I forget something on that truck of yours? Rufus shakes his head. No, ma'am. Truck broke down. I'm staying in town till Alice or Derek can take a look at it and find out what's wrong. Oh, well, I'm sorry to hear about your truck. Not too sorry to say I'm happy we'll be seeing more of that smiling face around town for a while. I miss your folks. You told Annie I said hi last time you were here, didn't you? Rufus grins. This is what he misses. The easy rapport with people he's known his whole life. Living in a bigger city certainly has its perks, but Rufus can't say he exactly gets the whole picture. Where Mountain Hill is a community of folks who care about one another, every city he has lived in since his family parted ways with the small town has been full of people who have little to no concern for the lives of others. It saddens him, but that is just the way the world is. Outside of this community he has known his whole life, it's every person for themselves out there. Rufus collects a handful of snacks and some microwavable meals that he can eat in his room at the inn. He has a horrible diet, often living off of TV dinners when he's home and fast food when he's on the road for long periods of time. He's looking forward to a homemade meal from Mrs. Bell and hopes she plans on making some apple pie for dessert. The woman is an amazing cook, but nothing tops her baked goods. After he checks out at the grocery store, he drops his food off back at his room before heading towards the Bell's house. He has an hour or so before he's supposed to be there, so he takes his time walking around neighborhoods he hasn't seen in several years, waving at folks who wave at him, and feeling a sense of peace and calm he just doesn't feel back at home. Finally, he makes his way to the Bell's house. Their house is average in size and has a similar style to a cabin with its wooden exterior and wraparound porch. Renford's blue truck is parked in the driveway, and Renford himself is sitting on a rocking chair on the porch, his head back as he naps a little in the late afternoon. It's a little windy in Mountain Hill, and there seems to be a cloud cover coming in, but otherwise the temperatures are relatively warm as summer begins to take hold. Beside Renford is an identical rocking chair, which sits empty. The table between them has a stack of paperback novels on it, one of which has an old receipt hanging out of it as a placeholder. Rufus smiles at the sight. He remembers when he was only about eight years old, finding Renford on benches throughout town, reading some novel or another. Whenever he would approach the old man, Renford would always hold up one finger to tell Rufus to wait until he found some random object to hold his place in the book. Usually it was a leaf he grabbed, but on occasion, Rufus has witnessed him bend over and pick up a single blade of grass to use as a bookmark. Rufus never understood it. Reading has never been a hobby he enjoyed, but he loved hearing stories as Renford told them. Rufus plops down into the rocking chair beside Renford and picks up the book with the receipt hanging out of it. It's an old copy of Pride and Prejudice, and he smiles as he sets it back down on the stack. Renford loves the classics, though not nearly as much as his wife does. The front door to the house opens then, and Mrs. Bell steps out, her hair pulled back in its typical bun. She's wearing an apron over the top of her blouse and jeans, and the apron has daisies embroidered around the edges, with a green and yellow plaid pattern across the bottom half. 
She smiles when she sees Rufus, holding out her arms for a hug. Rufus stands and hugs her back. Oh, honey, I'm so happy you could be here for dinner tonight. Me too, he says, pulling away. Cranford, Mrs. Bell says, going to her husband and squeezing his shoulder gently. Rufus is here, darling. Renford stirs, rubbing his eyes before rising to his feet. He holds out his hand to shake, and Rufus accepts before being pulled into a bear hug. It's good to see you, son. You too. Rufus grins at the both of them, feeling yet again that sense of belonging he so often seeks whenever he's not here. I hope it's okay, Mrs. Bell says as she leads Rufus into the house. But I invited Lyra and Colin over for dinner as well. They were chomping at the bit to get to meet you. Rufus's brows lift, but he tells her it's just fine. He's seen the two a handful of times when he's made deliveries to Lost Fiction. Lyra is usually either reorganizing the shelves or sitting behind the counter, reading a horror novel. Colin is almost always sitting in one of the chairs around the room, reading what Rufus has always assumed were old journals. As far as he knows, they both came to town on random whims and ended up living together in the apartment above the bookstore. He doesn't know why they're so excited to meet him, except that maybe they're starved for human contact from the outside world, but he doesn't mind. As far as he understands it, the two don't have anyone beyond Renford and Mrs. Bell to look out for them, and he doesn't mind getting to know some more folks around Mountain Hill. The inside of the Bell's house is small, with a living room, dining room combined, and an open concept kitchen that means Mrs. Bell has a full view of the surrounding areas while she's cooking. There are two bathrooms and two bedrooms. Rufus knows the second bedroom has been locked for years, and seriously doubts either Renford or Mrs. Bell has entered since, well, for the last ten years at least. He doesn't blame them. He knows all about keeping the ghosts of the past at bay. Lyra and Colin are sitting at the dining table, their heads bent over a book as they whisper to each other. Mrs. Bell enters the kitchen, heading straight to the sink to begin washing her hands. Renford takes a seat at the dining table and pokes Lyra in the side. She shoots him a dirty look before glancing up and making eye contact with Rufus. Oh, hey, she says, jumping up immediately. Colin looks up and smiles, giving Rufus a friendly wave, which he returns with a small smile. Lyra rushes around the table and holds out her arms, asking, Are hugs all right? I like to hug. She really does, Colin mutters, and Renford laughs. Yeah, hugs are great, Rufus says. He hugs Lyra back, and he can't help but feel like she's familiar somehow. He can't quite explain it, but hugging her is like hugging his family, and there's a comfort there that he doesn't think he would feel with most strangers. When she pulls away, he says, It's nice to finally meet you guys outside the store. They both take a seat, and Lara fills the room with stories of her life before she moved to Mountain Hill, speaking reverently about her car, which she spent an entire summer rebuilding one year. It's in the garage, Lara says, sighing. It's pretty messed up from... Colin elbows her in the rib suddenly, and she shoots him an annoyed look before saying, From the accident? Rufus lifts his brows, glancing between the two of them at this exchange. Ultimately, he decides to let it go, because if they have something they're not comfortable talking about, he certainly isn't going to press the issue. Colin, honey, will you come grab the dishes and get to work setting the table? Mrs. Bell asks from the kitchen, and both Colin and Rufus rise immediately, heading into the kitchen. Mrs. Bell shoes Rufus away, but not before he manages to grab the bowls and silverware. Oh, Rufus, you are a guest. Rufus laughs and sets the dishes in the appropriate places. Lyra scoops the book she and Colin had been reading, one of those old journals, off of the table and sets it aside. Rufus finishes up setting out the dishes while Colin carries the food out and sets it in the center of the table. Oh, Mrs. Bell, 
Rufus says when he spots her homemade spaghetti and meatballs and the from scratch rolls. You are too good to me. Mrs. Bell comes out of the kitchen with a bottle of wine and two wine glasses, and Colin carries a pitcher of water and three more wine glasses behind her. They set the items on the table before taking their seats, Colin beside Lyra and Mrs. Bell beside Renford. Rufus sits at the end of the table, and as each of them serves themselves, he can't ignore the aching in his chest, the sense that he belongs here with these four people. He wishes more than anything that he could find a reason to stay, though he feels awful just thinking that. His family would, well, he imagines they wouldn't be happy, but they would pretend nothing was wrong with the idea, just as they all pretended their lives hadn't been forever changed 25 years ago. The group eats in a peaceful silence, commenting on Mrs. Bell's cooking every so often, refilling their bowls until each of them could hardly eat any more. Rufus leans back first, taking a sip of the water Colin brought out. Mrs. Bell and Renford both know Rufus doesn't touch alcohol, and he's grateful they didn't make a big fuss about it. So, Rufus, Lyra says, once everyone has helped Mrs. Bell clean up the dishes and pack the leftovers into containers for the three of them to take home with them. Mrs. Bell and Renford say you used to live here? Rufus nods, taking a sip of his water. Yeah, until I was about ten. I started making deliveries at nineteen after I got my CDL. My parents started the delivery business a few years before, and I was the first volunteer to come up to Mountain Hill. Oh, interesting, Lyra says. None of the rest of your family likes to come back? He shakes his head, meeting her eyes. There's some stuff they'd rather forget about this place. She raises a brow. And what about you? Is there stuff you want to forget about this place? I think some things are better left buried in the past, but others are worth digging up. He shrugs. I like it up here. I like the people, the environment, but it's much easier for me to stay close to my family. Is it just your family that keeps you from moving back? Rufus thinks for a moment, trying to think of something else that might be swaying his decision. He comes up empty. I suppose so. Lara nods, and there is a look in her eye that tells Rufus she understands him perfectly. Sorry for the intrusive questions, she says, and he notices her cheeks redden a bit. I can be a bit nosy. He laughs. That's okay. Lyra is a curious one, Renford says. But she's a good kid. Lyra rolls her eyes, but smiles nonetheless. Mrs. Bell puts her hand on Rufus's shoulder. It's about time for you to head back to town. Do you want to ride back to the inn? Rufus glances at the clock and feels his heart sink a little in his chest. This is one thing he's never been able to understand about this town. Ever since he could remember, there's always been a curfew requiring folks to be home before the sun sets. In the summer months, when the sun is out for a long time, it's not so bad. But in the winter, when most times the sun sets by five or six in the evening, it's hard to be able to do nearly anything in town if you want to make plans. Though he knows it hardly affected him when he was younger, the curfew now is a slight annoyance. He wants to stay, to catch up with his friends and to make a couple new ones but he knows it'll have to wait for another day. You're more than welcome to come over any days you're here, Rufus, Renford says, slapping him lightly on the back. It's been really good to see you. Rufus nods, smiling at the man. It's always a pleasure to see you, too. And it's been really great talking to you guys, he says, turning his attention back on Lyra and Colin. Colin nods and Lyra says, You too, Rufus. I'll drive you back into town, Renford says, rising to his feet. I have to take these two back anyhow. Lyra and Colin exchange a glance before they both rise. Colin grabs the journal Lyra set aside earlier and gives an awkward side hug to Mrs. Bell. She looks absolutely pleased that Colin did even that, and Rufus smiles a little to himself. He likes Colin, even if he didn't talk much all night.
He knows Colin has social anxiety, can recognize the signs from his experience with his own brother Toby. He hopes he didn't make Colin uncomfortable tonight, but he has a feeling Lyra would have stepped in if that was the case. The two seem as close as two peas in a pod, and he wonders just what they've been through to bring them together like this. From what he gathered in their conversations tonight, they didn't know each other at all before making their way to Mountain Hill. But if he had to guess just by watching them interact, he would say they've been friends their whole lives. Everyone says their goodbyes, and Rufus promises to come over at least once more before the truck is repaired and he returns home. Mrs. Bell appears satisfied by his promise, though he knows if she got her way, he would be over every night for dinner. He isn't sure why, but she's always been incredibly protective of him, and he knows she hates that he's so willing to spend the evenings alone in his tiny hotel room. He knows she hates it even more that he lives on his own, that he hasn't found someone to share his life with. He stopped looking for that someone a while ago, deciding if a person exists out there that he should be with, they'll find each other eventually. Otherwise, he's happy with his life, and he knows that's all anyone wants for him. Mrs. Bell is like a second mother to him, and he knows her worries come from a place of caring rather than judgment, so he never says anything about it. He appreciates that she cares at all. Renford leads the three of them out to his truck, and Lyra and Colin climb into the back seats. Rufus casts a dubious glance at the woman, who is taller than him by a couple inches at least, as she climbs into the seat behind him, but she doesn't notice. Colin shrugs at Rufus before climbing into the seat beside her, and Rufus gets into the front seat. Thank you for the ride back, Rufus says once they're on the road. Renford nods. The Ashbys have been keeping up with the salt and whatnot, right? He asks as he turns onto a street that connects with Ashton Avenue. Yeah, Rufus says. He checked under the windows earlier, his old superstitions in full force. It was ingrained in him from a young age to always put salt underneath the doorways and windows and to keep an iron horseshoe somewhere around the house, or in his case, apartment. Though he doesn't know why he follows these rules, even years later in a city that doesn't care for small-town superstitions, he can't help it. It's one of the few things his family still does, even if they refuse to acknowledge where it came from. Good, Renford says. I know they don't get many people staying there, save for those girls a week or so ago, so it's nice to hear they're keeping up with it. Rufus lifts his brows. There were some newcomers to town? Yeah, Lyra says, cutting into the conversation. I'm surprised you haven't heard anything about it, wandering around town. There were two women. Uh, cousins, I think. One of them went missing while they were hiking out in the woods, and no one is sure what happened to her. Oh, wow, Rufus says, rubbing his jaw. That's... that's awful. Is the other woman okay? Lyra shakes her head. She just left this morning, actually. We found her, a little delirious, the same day she showed up in town. She has no idea what happened to her cousin, and it really messed her up. Were they high or something? Rufus asks, and Lyra shakes her head again. No, we think maybe they stumbled across a plant that made them delirious, and they got separated. Tilly has a few people out looking for the other woman, but... She frowns. It seems neither woman had anyone besides each other to look out for them, and Dorothy couldn't handle waiting to hear if they found her cousin or not. Oh, that's so... Rufus says, shaking his head. I hope they find her. Something flashes across Lyra's face, a deeper sorrow than most would feel for a stranger's situation. Yeah, she says, turning and looking out her window. I hope so, too. The rest of the truck ride is silent after that. When they arrive at the inn, Rufus climbs out and Lyra moves into the passenger seat. Before shutting the door, she says, Rufus? He turns and looks at her, and for the first time since meeting her, her expression is serious. Fear in her eyes as she says, tone urgent. Stay inside tonight, would you? His brows furrow, but he says, I was planning on it. 
good, she says, before pulling the door shut. Colin waves goodbye, and he waves back, not entirely certain why he feels a sudden sense of dread and foreboding in his gut. Something is going to happen tonight. He has no idea what that might be, or how he even knows that. All he knows is that whatever it is, it's going to be bad. It's a few hours later when he feels a sense of restlessness settle over him. He's lying in bed, trying to sleep, but he tosses and turns as he thinks of what Lyra told him earlier, and her ominous-sounding parting words. What happened to that woman, Dorothy, is eerily familiar, and he wonders how often people just up and vanish in this town. He wants to believe it's rare, but it is far too coincidental that this total stranger experienced something so similar to him. It's this restlessness that leads Rufus to make a decision he knows is reckless, but he does it anyway. He glances at the clock as he sits up, pulling on his boots and t-shirt. It's almost one in the morning. No one else should be out tonight. No one will even know he went outside. He stretches before grabbing his wallet and room key, heading out into the cool evening air. He hears the sound almost immediately. He isn't sure how to describe it exactly, but he knows what it is without a doubt. Someone is fighting something that is very large, and he has an inkling he knows who it is. This is another feeling he can't quite explain, but there is something in his gut telling him he needs to go towards the sound to see just what is going on. He has a feeling whatever it is is going to change his life forever. Rufus takes off at a sprint towards the sound, and though he's not necessarily out of shape, he's still surprised to find he is hardly out of breath when he reaches the stretch of road the fight is happening on, and he feels his stomach sink at the sight laid out before him. The thing is horrifying reminding him a little of a zombie from a low-budget horror film. It ambles down the street, followed by at least ten more things that appear nearly identical to it, all walking with a sense of purpose towards the center of town. And in the middle of it all is Lyra, metal bat in hand as she fights three of the things at once. Rufus watches, a little awestruck, until there's a burst of light across from where Lyra fights, and he turns his gaze to find Colin, Flames writhing in the air around him as he throws literal balls of fire at the things tumbling out of the woods. Colin, I don't think fire is a great... Lyra says, wincing as a ball of flame hits a patch of grass and lights on fire. Idea... Colin groans. I'm practicing my aim. Lyra laughs, and Rufus doesn't know what to think as she hits one of the things upside the head with a sickening crunch and it tumbles to the ground, disappearing in a cloud of dust as she begins fighting another one. Panic sets in as he sees one of the things behind Colin, and before he can really think about what he's doing, Rufus is running, picking up the first thing he lays his hands on, an axe, as he tries to get to the thing before it gets to Colin. Colin! He shouts, and Colin jumps, head snapping in his direction as one of his balls of fire lands on a creature, knocking it to the ground. That one disappears in a cloud of dust as well, and Rufus is really beginning to wonder if he's dreaming. This all seems so surreal. But he knows what he's feeling is too real to be a dream, and as he shouts, Behind you! He feels a strange mixture of adrenaline and excitement course through his veins. This, no matter the insanity of it, feels right, and he wants to revel in the feeling as Colin jumps out of the path of the creature and Rufus reaches them. He lifts the axe and brings it down with the strength he didn't know he possessed, hitting the thing directly in the skull. The sound it makes is horrifying, but the creature collapses, disappearing into dust that vanishes on a non-existent breeze. I told you, Lyra shouts, hitting another creature with her bat. Goddamn imps. Rufus has no idea what she's talking about, but Colin seems to. He shakes his head and rolls his eyes, turning to Rufus. Welcome to the team, I guess, he says, and as flames ignite around him once more, Rufus can't help but laugh. 
Hey everyone, this is Raven, host and story writer of Mountain Hill Radio. I have a couple quick announcements about the show. First things first, episode 5, The Berserker, wraps up the introductory episodes of Mountain Hill Radio. That doesn't mean the show's over. In fact, it means we are just getting started. That leads us to our second announcement. I'm going to be taking the month of December off from recording and uploading episodes, but don't worry. The show will be back in the new year. Taking a month off means I can focus on writing the entirety of season one and making sure it's ready for you all to hear it. That also gives Zach, the wonderful, talented human being who writes and produces the music for the show, more time to get the music ready for season one. Make sure to be following the show on social media so you can be updated ASAP when episode one of season one comes out. You can find information about the show on Facebook by searching Mountain Hill Radio on Instagram by searching at Mountain Hill Radio Podcast, and on TikTok at Mountain Hill Radio Pod. You can also find the show on Twitter by searching for Mountain Hill Radio, spelled M-T-N-H-I-L-L-R-A-D-I-O. Your support these past few months have meant the world to me, and this show exists because you decided to give it a chance and kept listening after episode one. I wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who's left nice comments on social media. You always bring a smile to my face, and it makes me so happy to see how the show has affected people. I also wanted to ask a favor of you. If you would please, please post about the show, or even send it to a friend or family member, that is honestly the biggest way you can help get more people involved in the show. Um, Posting about it or telling people about it is honestly, like, word of mouth is the best way to get information out. Um, If you do post or tweet about the show, make sure to use the Mountain Hill Radio hashtag so I can see it. Also, if you are listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, the best way to get more people to see it is by leaving a review. These reviews help let Apple know people enjoy the podcast, and they'll begin showing it to other people who might also enjoy it. Every little thing you do helps, and I'm so incredibly grateful to all of you for your constant support. Finally, all music featured in the show is produced by Zach Bradshaw. You can find him by searching for Nautilus of the Tide on Instagram and all streaming platforms. You should really check out his music. It's all super good, and he really deserves all the support. Um, That wraps up all the announcements I had to make. Don't forget to follow the page on social media so you don't miss out on any announcements. Thank you so much again for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Lyra had a feeling, the moment they walked past a random axe lying in the grass on the side of the road, that the imps were busy meddling in their lives once again. And as the gravelings began stumbling from the trees, she knew it was only a matter of time before Rufus appeared, ready to fight against the creatures she and Colin had been trying to spare him from, at least for one more night. She can't lie. She'd been hoping, against all hope, that Rufus might be spared a little longer from this. After everything that happened with Dorothy and her cousin, and after not really having any time at all to process any of it, let alone the fact that she very nearly died and might have if it hadn't been for Colin and Tilly, she wanted to believe they might have some more time to figure things out before fate came knocking once again. She's not surprised, though. It's an hour later, after she, Colin, and Rufus worked together to kill the fifteen or so gravelings, and Mrs. Bell has given Rufus the same rundown she gave Lyra and Colin, and most likely Dorothy, though she doesn't remember that bit. 
She was unconscious for several days while her body healed, and while some of that time has come back to her throughout the day, it's all bits and pieces, a flash here and there that ultimately don't mean anything in the grand scheme of things. Rufus has taken everything in stride, and Lyra is grateful that he doesn't seem totally panicked about the whole situation. It makes sense, in a way. He did grow up here, and while he never knew what was happening in the town, he admits to them that he had his suspicions that there was something strange going on. Renford offers to drive Rufus back to the inn, and after everyone has filed out, and Lyra has reaffirmed to Tilly that she is, in fact, totally fine, and didn't get hurt during her fight with the Gravelings, she and Colin make their way upstairs from the lobby of Lost Fiction. The bookstore has become their unofficial meeting place. It's the most centrally located for all of them, and though nowhere in town takes that long to get to, it seems everyone feels most comfortable to talk about the things that go bump in the night in neutral territory. Somewhere they can leave it all behind before returning to their respective sanctuaries. Though the apartment resides above Lost Fiction, it has still become their own little sanctuary, totally separate from the meeting place that is the bookstore. Colin unofficially moved in on that first day after he decided to stay in Mountain Hill, and has been living on the couch ever since. The living room is absolutely spotless, though the dining area and her bedroom are not quite so clean. She has photocopies of various pages of the journals hung up around her room, with random sticky notes plastered on the copies as she has tried to puzzle something out that Colin hasn't quite been able to decipher on his own. He doesn't ask, though, and Lyra doesn't explain. Lyra immediately goes into the bathroom and starts the shower, and Colin collapses on the couch, exhaustion weighing heavily on his bones. It has been a long past few weeks, and he knows things are only just getting started. The creatures have been coming out in droves, each one more horrible than the last. Tonight was the first time he'd seen them organized into some semblance of a pack, though, and he wonders if that is just a graveling thing or if something far more sinister is at work. Whatever the case may be, he can't exactly say he's too upset that another person may be joining them in this fight. Rufus kicked some serious ass earlier, and though he'd seemed totally out of his element at first, the longer he'd wielded that axe and fought against the creatures, the more Colin could see he was made for this, just as he and Lyra are, just as Dorothy is. Colin wonders what Dorothy's plans are. She can't hold an official funeral for her cousin, but he has a feeling she wouldn't even if there was a body for her to bury. The four days they waited for Lyra to wake were some of the longest of his life, full of a too-silent Dorothy and a strained feeling in the air between them. She clearly wanted absolutely nothing to do with this, and Colin couldn't say he blamed her. He'd wanted to run at the first sign of trouble, too. And Dorothy had lost the one person in the world she cared about. Colin couldn't even imagine it. Dorothy's loss had prompted him to reach out to Troy. He'd been too nervous to leave town, worried that he would lose his courage the moment he got somewhere with a decent signal and he would change his mind. So instead, he wrote Troy a short letter letting him know he found somewhere to be and that he missed him. He drove to the local post office and dropped off the letter, so not without nearly talking himself out of it. But he's tired of feeling angry. Tired of carrying around a burden that has no right weighing down his shoulders. He dropped off that letter a few days ago, and though he still doesn't understand how the Postal Service operates in a town which has practically been erased from existence by literal magic, he has a feeling his letter will reach Troy. He has no idea if his brother would write back, but at least he's done the hardest thing and reached out. If Troy never responds, then at least Colin could feel some sense of closure about the whole thing, even if it would destroy him a little. Lyra finishes up in the shower, and just as Colin hears a blow dryer click on, the house phone starts ringing. He glances at the clock and frowns, unsure who would be calling at this hour. 
It might be Renford or Mrs. Bell, though he doubts they would call for anything less than an emergency. With a sigh, he climbs off the couch and heads to the phone, picking it up right as it's about to go to voicemail. Hello? he asks, rubbing his eyes. There's nothing but silence on the line, and he frowns. Mrs. Bell? Uh, an unfamiliar feminine voice says. I'm so sorry, I think I might have the wrong number. Colin sighs. Who are you calling for? There is silence, then finally. I'm looking for Anna Myers, or, well, I guess she goes by Lyra. Colin's frown deepens. Who is this? I'm sorry, I should go. It's so late and this has to be the wrong number, and... The bathroom door opens suddenly, and Lyra leans her head out. Who is that, Colin? Oh, the woman says on the other line. Is that Lyra? Can I talk to her? Colin's stomach sinks as he realizes just who he might be talking to, and he says, What's your name? I can take a message. My name is Jennifer, the woman says. Can you tell Lyra I need her to call me back? Tell her it's urgent. Colin says, I'll relay the information, and hangs up the phone. Lyra frowns as she watches him place the phone back on its stand. Who was that? Colin swallows past the sudden knot in his throat, anxiety bubbling up inside him in an instant. He hates this, wishes he hadn't picked up the phone, but is simultaneously glad he did so Lyra wouldn't have had to talk to her. Still, he wishes she hadn't called at all. It was Jennifer, he says, wincing as Lyra flinches. She said, she asked if you would call her back. She said it was urgent. Lyra doesn't say anything for a long moment, just stares at the phone as she contemplates Colin's words. She doesn't know how to feel about Jennifer getting a hold of her. She knows without a doubt it means her mother or father, but she's willing to bet she knows which one of them it was, gave Jennifer her phone number, despite her repeated demand that her mother cut all contact with her ex-girlfriend. She hasn't spoken to her parents in nearly two weeks, not after the last phone call that ended with her mother all but ordering her to return home. Lyra all but told her mother to fuck off. That conversation didn't end well. Thank you for not telling her I was here, she says finally, and she sees Colin's shoulders relax visibly at her words. She's told Colin bits and pieces about her past with Jennifer, though she hasn't told him everything. He knows about the theft, though, and that seems to have been good enough for him to have her back about the whole situation. It's not necessarily that she doesn't want him to know Jennifer was also cheating on her, it's just that... She's still dealing with it, struggling to come to terms with the fact that the woman she thought she'd been in love with hadn't cared for her at all. If she spends too much time thinking about it, it seriously starts to weigh her down, so she does everything in her power to keep Jennifer off her mind, which is exactly why she has begun noticing patterns in the journals. Lyra began throwing herself into studying them about a week after Colin decided to stay here. She wanted to memorize as much as she possibly could about the creatures that had been terrorizing the citizens of Mountain Hill the past couple hundred years. And it wasn't doing so, she began to notice strange patterns, things that had gone unnoticed all this time simply because they were such small things no one would notice them if they didn't have a huge collection of journals through the ages to compare notes with. It began with dates. Every 24 years, there would be a sudden increase in activity from the creatures. It was almost always one specific type of creature so that didn't stop others from appearing. But the increase in activity led to more missing people, more deaths, and more destruction around town. This activity would last for about six months before dying down and returning to normal. But then, Lyra began noticing something else strange. The creatures were almost always considered to be of a certain elemental type. There were the creatures who favored fire, those who favored water, 
and others who favored earth or air or storm. Then there were the creatures which did not have a specific element they corresponded to, and these creatures were almost always the nastiest, always leaving behind the most death and destruction. As Lyra had begun making notes and doing the math, she quickly realized they were fast approaching another six-month period where the creature activity would increase, and after their fight with the Gravelings tonight, she finally knew what elemental correspondence the next six months would bring. She would tell Colin and Mrs. Bell tomorrow, would show them all of the evidence she found. They had a little over one month left before all hell broke loose around town, which meant one month to convince Rufus to somehow stay and help them with their fight, and one month to attempt to track down Dorothy, and hope against all hope she would be willing to join them. It would be no easy task, but she would do it. She has to, or this might very well mean the destruction of everything they know. Rufus wakes early the following morning, and sets to motion the plan he came up with in the last moments before he fell asleep. It only takes one quick phone call to the warehouse to let his siblings know what he's doing, and though Sophie especially didn't like the idea, he'd known right when he decided this was what he wanted that she wouldn't fight him. The typical Stephen's stubbornness comes through for him in the end. He then makes his way over to Lost Fiction, where he finds a sleepy-looking Colin and a too-cheerful Lyra sitting at the counter as if they've been waiting for him. He tells him his idea, and both are on board immediately. Even Colin, who seems to feel more comfortable with him now after they fought the Gravelings side by side last night. Mrs. Bell and Renford arrive shortly after ten, and Renford takes Rufus to the office of one Cedric Owens, a developer that moved to Mountain Hill in the early 80s, who never could get any of his projects off the ground. Now, he owns a handful of properties throughout Mountain Hill, and he helps Rufus find the perfect building to set up his base of operations in, as well as a small two-bedroom house up for rent tucked in a cul-de-sac. Rufus spends the rest of the day on the phone with various folks. First, his landlord, letting him know he'll be terminating his lease early. Then, the only power, gas, and water companies that do business in Mountain Hill. He gets his utility set up for the house and building, and at the end of the day, calls his sister one more time to let her know how things went. He doesn't know how everything manages to fall into place so perfectly, but he decides not to question it. Lyra tried explaining imps and fate to him early this morning, but he'd had a hard time paying attention, and she'd ultimately decided this would be a conversation best had over a longer period of time, rather than trying to explain everything all at once. What Rufus does know, and understand, is that he has finally found the place where he belongs. He still has much to learn, both about the town and about his newfound abilities, but he feels like he's finally found home, and it's a feeling he wants to revel in forever. Dorothy watches as her opponent, a man with too many muscles and too little brains, falls to the ground, defeated. She waits a few moments to make sure he's well and truly out before dropping to her knees beside his unconscious form, digging through his pockets to find his wallet and keys. The former she rifles through, pulling out any extra bills and pocketing the money before tossing it aside. The latter she tosses into a dumpster behind the rundown diner, but not before slashing the tires on his car. She's just being petty at this point, but she doesn't really give a shit. She's been itching to put her fists into Danny's face for years now, and now that, now that she has no one telling her not to, she feels pretty damn good about it. The high of the fight won't last forever, though. Soon enough she'll come down, and eventually she'll remember why she decided to beat the shit out of the idiot. But for now, she revels in just how good it felt to pummel the bastard for every lie he's ever told, and for every woman he's ever hurt. It's been too long since she's allowed her bloodthirst to come to the surface like this, and though her knuckles ache in the places they split after hitting Danny probably one too many times, 
The pain is a reminder that she is alive, and despite the fucked up shit she's seen over the past week, she will continue to live. Because she knows Andy would want her to. Dorothy walks to her bike, tugging on her helmet and climbing on. She has one more stop to make tonight before she hits the road, running yet again from problems she's created for herself. Though she loathes the very idea of what she's about to do next, she knows she has to do it. The ride to the trailer she shared with Andy is a short one, and Dorothy wastes no time parking her bike and heading inside. She packs a backpack with some clothes and random essentials, as well as a handful of dumb knickknacks she can't live without. She goes into Andy's room and grabs the only thing in there she cares about, a framed photo of the two of them, and wraps it in a couple t-shirts for good measure. She doesn't look at anything else in Andy's room, can't bring herself to do it for the life of her. The wound is still too fresh, and though she's a glutton for punishment, she won't allow Andy's memory to be tarnished by what she's feeling. She shuts the door behind her as she heads out into the living room, picking up the final item she came to retrieve. The cat carrier is one of those made of hard plastic, and as she herds Andy's cat into it, she wonders just why she finally found a place in her heart for the damn thing. She hates cats, with a fiery, burning passion, but she knows Susie doesn't deserve to be abandoned. She hates cats, but she'll take care of Susie, because she was Andy's, and Andy loved the stupid beast with all her stupid heart. Dorothy doesn't look back as she carries her backpack and the cat carrier out of the trailer. She knows the landlord will come looking for them in about a month, when the rent is due, and will find the place basically abandoned. She knows he'll sell their stuff in an instant, with total disregard for anything sentimentally valuable. And she knows he'll rent out the trailer to someone else, all of this without reporting either woman missing. This is the type of place they were living in, the types of lives they were leading. Impermanent and replaceable. No one will notice they are gone. No one will even care enough to come looking for her. Dorothy smiles as she straps Susie's carrier down onto the back of her bike, making sure the thing is secure before pulling on her helmet and climbing back on. The cat isn't making a single peep, and Dorothy can't say she's too broken up about that. As she starts her bike and takes off into the deep, dark abyss of night, Dorothy sheds the life she lived once before, and heads towards the life she has to live now. Towards that distant town of Mountain Hill. This has been Mountain Hill Radio. I'm just a woman, alone in a radio tower, speaking into the void and hoping that somebody hears me. I hope whoever you are listening to this, that you are somewhere warm and safe, and that you remember you are never alone. I am always here with you, your constant companion into the late dark hours of night. Remember, everything you've heard is absolutely fictional. There are no monsters roaming the streets, and under absolutely no circumstances is it okay to leave your house after curfew. Thank you for listening.